You are listening to the Going Underground podcast from York Calling with me, Miles Salter. In this episode, we talk to journalist and author Leslie Ann Jones. Leslie has interviewed some amazing people, including Bridget Bardot, Tony Blair, Prince and Frank Sinatra. She is the author of 13 books and has documented the lives of stars such as David Bowie, Mark Bolan and Kylie Minogue. Last year, her book about John Lennon speculated about the former Beatles' murder in 1980. Her new book is Love of My Life, The Life and Loves of Freddie Mercury. This is a subject Leslie knows well because she toured with the band and was a script consultant for early versions of the film Bohemian Rhapsody. We talked to her as the 30th anniversary of Freddie's death approaches. Leslie Ann, thanks very much for talking to your calling. Nice to be here. Thanks for asking me. It's great to talk to you. We're just coming up to the 30th anniversary of Freddie's death. I saw Queen in 1986 on their final tour in the UK. And I can remember the, the shock and disbelief when I heard five years later that he had died. It was a terrible, tragic end to his life. It effectively spelt the end for Queen, although they have continued with various projects in the last three decades. But if anything, his reputation has grown over the last 30 years, hasn't it? Well, it has, and that's the reason I wrote this new book. This is my fourth book about Freddie. Uh, the first was in 97, the second in 2011. Uh, then a revised version of that was republished as uh, Bohemian Rhapsody in 2018. The film at that point had been in development for about 10 years, so it wasn't just published to coincide with the film. This new book occurred to me when I was thinking, you know, we're always thinking about dates and anniversaries in rock and roll. It seems to be something that drives our industry. And there I was looking at the dates thinking, goodness, it'll have been 30 years since Freddie left us in the same year that he would have turned 75. Then I realized that Freddie had become two things that are quite different from who he was during his lifetime. He's become this icon for the LGBTQ community is the first one, uh, which is something that he never was when he was alive. He was closeted when he died. He never came out. He was never open about his orientation, his sexuality, his relationships. I think we in the business had a fair idea what was going on. We met his partners, uh, but it wasn't really a thing. It wasn't something we wrote about. And I think about that sometimes. Why didn't we write about it? Some, some people did sell their stories to the papers, but usually people from inside of his camp, as it were, who, who sold their stories to make money. But those of us who were loosely part of the entourage, because we went on the tours and we covered the shows, if we'd have betrayed Freddie's confidence, we wouldn't have been invited back. So that was really, I think, why we didn't say anything about his deeply personal life. The second thing is that he's become a bit of a poster boy for diversity, something else that he wasn't during his lifetime. He's born in an African territory, Zanzibar. He was sent away to school in India at the age of eight and thereafter saw his parents only once a year. There was a revolution in Zanzibar in 1964 and the family ran for their lives to the UK and settled in Felton, West London. And from that point, Freddie, aged 18, was British and white. And he never alluded to his ethnic past. He never talked about Zanzibar. 
he occasionally made remarks about being a Persian popinjay and lying on a beach and having a servant bring him an iced orange juice and things like that. But I think those kinds of remarks were made tongue-in-cheek. Um, that was just Freddie being playful. He never really talked about his school years in a hill station in India, for example. And he left that past behind. So it was fascinating to me that he'd evolved into these two major things, which were nothing to do with him during his lifetime. You mentioned the the fact that he's sort of a poster boy for the LGBT community. But at the time when he died, he was actually there was actually some criticism that he hadn't come out and he hadn't talked about AIDS and HIV. Do you think that that criticism was justified at the time? It's very easy to judge people in the past by modern mores and ways of doing things, isn't it? And at the time, I, I have a, a time of this trying to explain it to my kids all in their early 20s. You know, we were living under this shadow of AIDS. It was a huge, huge global problem and still is to a large extent. A lot of people think AIDS has gone away, that people don't die of AIDS anymore. Well, no, maybe they don't in the first world. But in the third world, they do. Women, children, men, everyone. Still, it's still a massive problem in large swathes of the world, but not here. So it seems to have waned. But at the time, it was a massive, massive global problem. And Freddie didn't come out. He didn't talk about his true identity for a very simple reason that his family were Zoroastrian Parsis in a very closed community, very devout people, um, a, a very ancient culture which doesn't embrace homosexuality. It's outlawed, it is to this day. And Freddie couldn't embarrass his family or his community by being out. So he chose to live a double life. Whatever we think about that today, that was his prerogative at the time. And we can only respect that. It's interesting that his mother said after his death, when she knew that he was homosexual, we assume, I wish we'd known. I wish we'd known and that we could have talked to him about it and we could have done something about it. But it seemed awful to her that she hadn't known that hugely important aspect of her son until after his death. That, I mean, that in itself is, is very telling and quite sad, really. In the film, there were bits in the film where he was portrayed as a quite a lonely person. Do you think he was a lonely person? Yes and no. I have a lot of issues with, with the film, which I've written about extensively and in this book. What's your issues with the film? There are lots of inaccuracies. There are parts of Freddie's life rewritten. There are characters completely invented who didn't exist in real life. There are lots of moments, such as when Jim Hutton, who was Freddie's boyfriend for the last six years of his life or so, uh, when when they first meet, we are shown a party at Freddie's home and uh, Jim is portrayed as a waiter, one of the employees that night. Jim was a hairdresser. He worked at the Savoy in the barber's shop at the Savoy Hotel. And Freddie and Jim met at Heaven, the gay nightclub underneath Charing Cross Station. Why change that, really? I, I didn't see the point. You know, if there's a significant plot reason why something needs to be changed or varied or, or, or softened or hardened in some way. I, I get that. That's Hollywood. That's the way they make movies. But there wasn't actually a reason to change this. And of course, you've got millions of Queen fans out there who weren't actually born when Freddie died, who take this movie as gospel. They 
send abusive messages to me and all kinds of other people saying, well, you know, Brian May and Roger Taylor were co-producers of this film. Um, they were there and you weren't. So we believe them and we don't believe you. So, you know, everything you write is rubbish. And so that they take as gospel, as the Bible, this version of Freddie's story. And I'm afraid it's not. Brian May said, uh, he said, we've got to get the film right. Yeah, he did. And then afterwards, when he was barraged with criticism because people, I mean, there are websites that have lists noting down all the, the, the factual inaccuracies, the dates they got wrong, this single or this album didn't come out at this particular time, it wasn't that tour, it was this tour, all kinds of things. I mean, you know, look it up, it's all out there. And he then backtracked a little bit on that statement and said, well, yes, of course, it's not a documentary. It's um, a creative interpretation of somebody's life. Freddie lived for 45 years. It's impossible to cram all the fact and detail of a 45-year-long life into a two-hour, whatever it was, film. So you can sort of see why corners were cut. But that doesn't excuse the inventions and the changings and the deletions, and especially the very important people who were left out of the film, such as Freddie's girlfriend, Barbara Valentine, who was an actress he shared an apartment with in Munich. The other thing about the film that I wanted to ask you was, um, I think you said in an interview that because in, in the sort of the relatively early days of the band, a lot of people regarded them as a bit of a joke, they would take pet journalists with them, of, 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 of which you were yet one, because they wanted to kind of have a good reputation with the press. There's a moment in the film where the, the single Bohemian Rhapsody comes out and they put up on the screen all the nasty critical comments that they got, which I thought, I mean, I thought that was a bit strange, really, because 43 years later and we still remember, even though we're regarded as one of the great rock bands in the world, 43 years later, we're still smarting over these, these criticisms. I thought that was very telling. Oh, they do. I mean, you know, we had the same thing with Roger Daltrey's uh, memoir that came out a couple of years ago now. I forget the name of the teacher, but it had the name of the teacher in the title of the book who had told him he would never amount to anything. So, you know, all those years later, all that success, all those millions, all those tours and great global influence. And Roger Daltrey still can't back down from something his teacher said to him when he was a kid. Uh, you saw the same thing in Elton John's Rocket Man, which, you know, was a fantasy, really. You couldn't take that film seriously, could you? It was a, a dreamlike version of Elton's real life, but which, which I felt was a bit of a vehicle for him to hammer his poor deceased mother. But you, you had Elton getting back at all kinds of people in that film, which I didn't really think was fair. I think the problem with Queen was that the music press didn't get them because they couldn't categorize them. You know, what, what, what pigeonhole, what genre, how, how do we describe these guys? They didn't fit into anything. They weren't uh, heavy metal, they weren't hard rock, they weren't pop, they weren't blues, they weren't this, that or the other. You couldn't really categorize Queen. So because they couldn't, they tended to dismiss them. And these are guys writing for the music papers, which were all powerful and selling in their millions before Fleet Street got hold of rock and roll which is when I came in. So I wasn't writing for the music press. I was on the national press. And that was a whole different trip because that, of course, wasn't primarily about music. 
It was about what they got up to when they weren't on stage. But so when we went on tour with them, yes, we reviewed the show. We took part in the, in all the goings on, not all of them. Um, and we let what happened on tour stay on tour because otherwise we wouldn't go the next time. Okay, fair enough. Let, let's let, you you touched on the formative the, the formative years. Can you just tell us a little bit about what happened early on in in Freddie's life? Well, as I mentioned earlier, Freddie was born in Zanzibar. Uh, he went away to India, thousands of miles away to school at the age of eight. He had a very lonely life at that boarding school, and of course, lots of separation anxiety. He saw his parents only once a year. After that, during half terms and holidays. He used to go to his auntie in what was then still Bombay, nowadays Mumbai. And there were no telephone lines laid between uh, India and Zanzibar at that time. So we're talking the 1950s, so he couldn't even phone them up. And he wrote letters, very formal letters, which were of the dearest mum and dad variety. And I did this in sport and I beat this guy in boxing and I got a six in, in music or whatever. But, but not about feelings. There was nobody there addressing Freddie's emotions, which is what family life really is all about. And, and the kind of thing that we take for granted if we grew up in a household where you saw your mum and dad every day and your siblings and you all sat around a dinner table together. Freddie missed out on all of that. So he didn't really get to know his parents until his mid to late teens, by which time he had a very fractious relationship with his father, who was a very devout part of Zoroastrian policy, who had expectations of his son that Freddie didn't have a hope in hell of fulfilling. They paid painstakingly for his education, thinking that they were going to get a lawyer or a doctor or an accountant at least out of him. But Freddie didn't follow that trajectory because Western rock and roll came to India in the 1950s, at which point he lost interest in his academic studies and he formed a band, the Hectics, and he was the piano player. And they were hugely successful in their little community. The local girls' school were their biggest fans. And, uh, you know, this Freddie developed a taste for adulation at that point, for screaming attention. And the pennies dropped and he realized that that was what he wanted to do with his life. The very best thing that happened to him was the move to England because at that stage he was allowed to reinvent himself and he dropped into West London right in the middle of the swinging 60s. You say that he was sent away at the age of eight and he didn't really have a sense of family. Do you think that sense of abandonment or loneliness, do you think that stayed with him for the rest of his life? It would be too easy to say yes. I think aspects of him had that. But, you know, one of the things about joining a band you will know some of this, you're a musician yourself. It is that camaraderie thing. It is like a, a stand-in family. It's the sense of belonging that you get. And Queen have always used the word family to describe their setup and how close they were and, and the implications of, of uh, how they made collective decisions and, and all worked together very harmoniously. But we know otherwise. We know that in the studio, for example, they argued about every little thing. Uh, Freddie even once said, you know, we argue about the air that we breathe, but that's a real family, isn't it? Real families scrap and spat all the time. And so there's, there's that given thing that you are joined by blood 
and in their case they almost were, that you have the confidence to be able to stand up to each other and say what you really think. You're not pussyfooting around the way you perhaps are in, say, an office employment situation where if you criticise the boss too much, he's going to kick you out. So um, I think, yes, that the, the setup of being in a band, rather than being a solo artist, Freddie couldn't have been that. He needed that group of boys around him and they needed to forge forward together. I heard you on uh, Steve Wright's programme a few weeks ago and you said that a lot of his life was about fantasy. It was about escaping reality. Can you, can you say some more about that and, 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 and how, did he, how did he do that? We wrote songs. I mean, that is the ultimate escape, isn't it, really? It's like if you take us right back to the, the old blues man of the 30s and 40s, um, a lot of those songs were literally driven by images of the railroad. And of course, the railroad represented escape, getting away from misery, getting to another place. And so much of Freddie's songwriting was like that, not necessarily honing in on the railroads, but you've even got the line, no escape from reality. Right, yeah. Absolutely. So, so all of his life was, was about escaping something. And I think what it boiled down to was Freddie actually escaping himself. He was afraid to be with himself. He always needed somebody around. He always needed to have a partner. He very often didn't have just one partner. He had several on the go at once. So what does that say to us? But that, that is someone who can't be on their own. One of the albums that Graham's been featuring on his other, he's got another, there's another uh, York Calling podcast, but one of the albums that, that has come up more than once is A Night at the Opera, which I think is a, is a really amazing album. And there is a sort of slightly fantastical element to it. You know, songs like, songs like Seaside Rendezvous. You know, there is this sort of sense that he's kind of imagining himself in these different scenarios. He's kind of escaping, well, I'll go back to that lyric again, he's kind of escaping reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that the songs are a kind of a vehicle for this sort of slightly fantasy life. I think also he was casting himself back at that stage to an imagined reality in Zanzibar. Zanzibar wasn't how it comes across, you know, the way, I don't know if you've been there, if you go there today, it's a very exotic, very glamorous holiday destination. Back then it was a very dirty, shabby, backward place. Uh, the beaches weren't the kind that you lay on and went swimming from. It, there was no glamour about it. But I think Freddie reinvented his homeland in his mind. And he was also blending the idea of, of an exotic Zanzibar with the British seaside culture as well. So there were all kinds of influences coming in, neither of which he'd experienced, by the way. So he, he's melding those things and blending them together in his mind and coming up with something totally new. That's what he was brilliant at. So when he did The Great Pretender, which was his solo song in the, in the 80s, was that tongue in cheek or was that like sort of actually kind of saying, you know, I am, my life is a bit of a pretense. There, there is a bit of a, a kind of a second existence going on here. This song, which was originally a hit for the Platters, there was no better song to describe Freddie Mercury. So much so that he didn't even try to compose something in that vein because this song was him. It identified him. And so he couldn't put that out there in all seriousness. I'm sure you remember the video that came along with that. that it was quite tongue-in-cheek. There was all these sort of pictures of his face. And 
And there was Roger Taylor and Peter Straker, a friend of his and somebody else, dressed up as women, but very exaggerated sort of cartoon women. And and yes, it was it was a send-up. But behind the send-up was the truth. And that also was another trope of Freddy's. That was another tick that you very often had. Say something like, I want to break free, which of course was John Deacon's song, but but it's Freddie singing it. And so it becomes Freddie's vehicle. And okay, there's disguise, but you don't have to look very far behind the disguise to see what's really going on. He really went for it as a as a gay man in the in the early 1980s. There was an interview with Paul Gambaccini where Paul Gambaccini said he said to Freddie once, "How are you? Are you AIDS was coming in?" And he said, "Are you taking precautions?" And Freddie said, "No, I'm just carrying on as normal." With and that had tragic consequences. What what was the hedonistic lifestyle like for him in, in the early 80s? Well, the thing was that it wasn't happening here in the UK. They were sort of on a, a tax break, tax exile um, spell in Munich, where they were recording at that time because of the punishing um, tax rates in this country then. And Munich was a very hedonistic city in those days, very different from Munich today, where he could indulge all his fantasies. Everything was on offer there. Some people have said, well, Freddie discovered cocaine there. No, he didn't. He was already using cocaine. But, but everything was used and done to excess in Munich. And all of Queen, whatever they say today, they were all at it. They were all up to everything there because they could get away with it because the press weren't breathing down their necks, watching their every move. There wasn't, we were as yet pre-paparazzi. That right. wasn't yet a thing. So, yeah. so there weren't people following him around and tailing him and snapping his every move. And he was embroiled in this kind of infernal triangle. So he had Jim Hutton, who was his boyfriend, back in England, who he used to fly out for weekends. And Jim was still working at the Savoy as a barber. He had a boyfriend he was passionately in love with called Winnie Kirschberger, who was a restaurateur in Munich and Freddie used to buy him cars and wrap them up in a, a ribbon and park them outside the restaurant and all this kind of stuff. And he also had met Barbara Valentine by this time, who is clearly a woman. Uh, she was a famous actress, very well known in Munich. So she was the biggest star in Munich as well. Whenever Freddie and Barbara went out, they'd walk into a club, restaurant, bar, people would be clamoring to get to her. And he said he loved Munich for that reason, because he could take a bit of a back seat and let her be the superstar and people would be climbing over to Freddie Mercury to get to Barbara so who's Freddie Mercury no who cares so they were very free in that town and they had a very liberated time but also as far as Freddie was concerned he was getting through dozens of young men a week as well as his relationships that he was involved in and, you know, you could only use the word orgy to describe uh, some of the nocturnal activity. I remember a journalist friend of mine saying he happened to walk into the wrong room one night and they were all in bed together, including Freddie and Barbara, and uh, inviting him to get undressed and join in. You know, it was kind of free for all. Oh, he made his excuses and left, by the way. That's, this is what journalists do. Um, but I think, you know, taking it to the end, throwing caution to the wind, and I sometimes wondered, did he suspect the ending? Did he perhaps fear that he was already on the downward spiral, that his fate was already sealed and therefore he was just going to go for it, hell for leather, come what may? 
He certainly did say that line to Paul Gambaccini. Uh, Paul told me that it, it was uttered down in heaven, that nightclub again, uh, when they were all on the dance floor together. And Freddie said, no, darling, I'm doing everything with everybody. And Paul saying, well, at that moment, I knew he was going to die. And I knew that it wasn't going to take long. Uh, let's talk about David Bowie. I think there's a I think there's a hint in the book, in your new book, that, that David Bowie and Freddie Mercury had a little liaison. Why would we be surprised? I mean, they... <laughs> Moving in the same circles in London in those days. They met. Um, they met in. They knew each other from the early seventies. I think is that right? A bit earlier, a little bit earlier, because Freddie was uh, still at art college, and David was still in his ten-year period of trying to give it away and couldn't. And he was going around uh, as a little duo doing lunchtime gigs at colleges and so on. And they came to Freddie's college. In fact, this is all documented in um, Love of My Life, the new book. And uh, Freddie sort of made himself busy plugging in amps and, uh, you know, bringing them stuff. And, and they got to know each other at that stage. And then when Freddie was working on a market stall in Kensington Market selling boots, he sold David Bowie a pair of boots. And that was sort of when they hooked up. They were in all the same pubs, all the same clubs, mixing with the same people. We know that Bowie was sleeping with everybody. He's told us that. Uh, why wouldn't he and Freddie have got together? Years later, when they did Under Pressure, was there some big sort of bust up between them? There was some tension in the studio or something? Yeah, there was. It wasn't between Freddie and uh, and David. That was more Brian May getting his nicks in the twist. Uh, that had started out as just a little jamming session. Uh, that was in Montreux, in the Queen's Mountain Studios in Montreux. Late one night, you know, David wanders in and we know the riff. Um, and they're, they're just sort of messing around and it, it, it just evolved as songs do. And there's been an argument all down the years as to who came up with the riff. Some people said it was Bowie, some people said it was John Deacon, who really knows. Brian didn't like the way the production was proceeding and wanted to do some more work on it. And it was eventually finished off in New York, but there wasn't agreement. It just didn't happen. They, they were seeing or hearing, I should say, they were hearing the song differently. But, I mean, what came out in the end was perfectly acceptable to all of us. Um, we've talked a lot about um, his personal life, but what were his gifts as, as, as an artist? Well, as a songwriter, you know, you'd have to, you'd have to give him that. It's, Freddie was unique as a songwriter and had a gift for pouring into succinct phrases and lines, universal sentiments and experiences. So we could all relate to those songs, even if some of the imagery was quite obscure and you had to look behind it a little bit to try and find out what he might be driving at. They're sort of the kind of, the kind of grand statements, aren't they? We are the champions, who wants to live forever? They kind of, they're sort of miniature epics that encapsulate something bigger. Those later songs are, certainly, yes, but the earlier songs hadn't quite got there yet, had they? The stadium anthems. I've always felt we're at a different phase for Queen. Right. The early songwriting. But, but he would never explain his songs. He'd say, oh, it, well, it's like poetry. You know, if, if you hear it, if you see it, then it's there. But uh, I'm, I'm not going to tell you what it's about because uh, that's for you to work out. And I sometimes thought, does he really know? Batting away of questions about specific lines, specific songs, just his way of saying, I'm not sure what I was really on about at that point. He might even have been high 
when uh, when he was writing certain stuff. I think I'm not sure if you've commented on this, but is it true that the first two albums there's this there's this fairy the fairy king business and that apparently he invented that with his sister? Is that right? Or what what's the story uh, there? Seven Seas of Rye, I think uh, we're talking about there, which certainly has allusions to Zanzibar. His little sister, Kashmira, who I think was six years younger than him, you know, I think he was casting his mind back to them, again, playing on a beach that they probably didn't play on, because the beaches are like, I don't know if you've been to Mumbai, but you don't want to go near the beach in Mumbai, and I think it's much the same in Zanzibar. So fantasizing, fantasizing about a relationship with a little girl that he didn't really have, because when he was sent away to school, she was a toddler. And when they came to England, he was 18, she was 12. So all those years of her life, when he could have had that lovely, special relationship, a big brother with a little sister, that didn't happen for them. It wasn't there. So I think a lot of that songwriting was replacement therapy for Freddie. The person that's been very conspicuous by his absence in, in the last well, years, is John Deacon. What, what's, what's going on with John Deacon? John lost his father when he was 11 and didn't really process, as a lot of kids don't when they lose a parent. He was the youngest in the band. And when Freddie died, it was like losing his father wow. again, and he couldn't cope with it. He went a bit off the rails. He started hanging around with lap dancers and going to dodgy clubs. And he set up a stripper in a flat, an expensive flat, and bought her a car, bought her mother a car, and he's got Veronica and the five or six kids all waiting for him at him. And eventually Veronica put her foot down and went and claimed him back. And he withdrew from music at that point. And Brian told me some years later that he never would return phone calls. He just didn't pick up. He didn't reply to text messages. He would reply to business emails. And he has, of course, reaped the rewards. But John was very firmly of the opinion that once Freddie died, Queen should end. That was it. That Queen without Freddie couldn't work. They couldn't replace him. And of course, Brian and Roger had other ideas. They bring in um, Paul Rogers from Free and they go out for a few years as Q plus PR. And then eventually they're, they're out on the road with Adam Lambert. To me, they've had a 30-year career that they wouldn't otherwise have had had Freddie not died because... Freddie was already sick and tired of rock tours. He hated touring, hated flying, loathed hotels, couldn't stand it. He was already making music with Montserrat Cavalier. He'd invented this rock opera genre, and he was much more into giving concerts, which is what I think he would have gone out. Every couple of years, he would have done this in some of the great concert halls around the world, some of these very glamorous places. And he would have done that as a solo artist, because he's grown out of that need for a boy band by this time. And Queen couldn't have continued had Freddie still been alive. So they would have had to call it a day. And so I think John Deacon was right to some degree. I mean, okay, fair enough. Queen music has been delivered, repackaged, remastered, restyled to all these subsequent generations. They've made a huge amount. And of highly profitable. Highly <laughs> profitable. They've also sold Freddie down the line, I think, uh, by leasing out his music soundtracks for TV commercials and so on. I think Freddie would be turning in his grave about this kind of thing. Right. His precious songs are being used to sell sofas, nappies, Viagra, hotels, cars, 
vacuum cleaners, obviously. Um, I don't think Freddie would have liked that at all. So, you know, I think maybe I'm with John Deacon, but Queen should have called it a day when Freddie died. Okay, final, final question, which has got nothing to do with what, what we've talked about. But when I was a teenager and I would, I would listen to the radio uh, late at night on a Friday, I would listen to Tommy Vance. Oh, didn't so I just want to ask you, what was Tommy Vance like? Tommy Vance was a great friend of mine. I used to go into the rock show at Radio 1 and sit in with him sometimes, and then we'd go out and get up to no good afterwards. Um, he was a great laid-back character in the sort of Roger Scott mould. You know, they didn't take themselves too seriously. It wasn't about them. It was about the music. And they just reveled in their opportunity to play all this great music that they loved for the enjoyment of millions of other people. And he, he said a great line to me once, which I've never forgotten. It's always in my head. This When I, was, I started to do television myself, and he said just one thing, don't famous too much. And I completely got what he meant. You know, again... It's not about you. It's about it's about the music. It's about what's out there. Don't don't be too up yourself. Don't be too up yourself. Yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah. the weird thing, Tommy has a daughter called Jessie, and she and my eldest daughter are now best friends. And that friendship occurred without me having anything to do. I sometimes think these things are being orchestrated from over there. He had such a great voice, really deep, sonorous, gravelly voice. Mm. And uh, he was, I thought he was fantastic on that programme. And his voice was like that in real life. You know, compare, contrast with somebody like Tony Blackburn, who also is a friend I'm very fond of. But, but Tony has an on voice that he puts on. He's like, well, my wife hates my on voice. She can't stand to listen to him on the radio. It's a projection of, of Tony uh, as he is in real life. You can still hear the timbre of his actual voice. But it's an exaggeration. Whereas with Tommy, it wasn't an exaggeration. Roger Scott was the same. That was their voice. That was their delivery. That was their stance in life. And it was terribly laid back. It's not about me. And I always loved that about him. Yeah, he was really, he was really good. I was really, I was really gutted when we lost, when we lost Tommy Vance. Definitely. And, and, Fla, and Fluff Freeman as well. Yeah. Well, Leslie Ann, thank you so much for talking to York Calling and the Going Underground podcast about the life and music of Freddie Mercury. The <laughs> book is called Love of My Life The Life and Loves of Freddie Mercury. It's by yeah. Leslie Ann Jones and it's out now in hardback. And it's been great chatting, Leslie Ann. Thank you very much. Thank you ever so much for having me. You have been listening to Going Underground by York Calling. This episode was written and hosted by Miles Salter and recorded and produced by Graham Smith. Special thanks to Leslie Ann Jones for being this week's guest. Don't forget to click follow so that you'll never miss an episode.